Hello and welcome to Series 4 of the Igniting Change podcast. It's been another tumultuous year as we come to grips with a global pandemic and its myriad repercussions. Through it all, Igniting Change has continued to work hard to bring about positive outcomes for the unseen and unheard in our community. Our guest today is Carly Stanley. Carly is the CEO and co-founder of Deadly Connections. Hi, Carly. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. What is Deadly Connections and how long ago did you set it up? So Deadly Connections is an Aboriginal community-controlled not-for-profit organisation based in Sydney and we set up Deadly Connections three years ago last September. So this is our third year of operations. And what made you set up something like this? So I co-founded Deadly Connections with my husband, Keenan Mundine, and we co-founded the organisation through our own lived and professional experience around the justice system, the child protection system and the not-for-profit sector where there are a lot of organisations but not a lot of them cater to the needs of mob. So we wanted to build something by the community for the community. And I guess you always want to be involved with people who've lived it, who've felt the same things that you've felt and that's a really good reason for having an organisation like that. How long did it take before people started to come to you, talk to you and use the resources that you were setting up? Well... Prior to us establishing Deadly Connections, we were already doing work in the community because the need is so great. We had a lot of concerns from community members around over-policing of our kids and we were trying to look for ways to create community safety that didn't rely on policing and things that we know don't work for our community. So we were already doing a a youth-focused sort of street-based program where we were going out every Saturday night, keeping the kids entertained, feeding them, providing them with pro-social activities. And then off the back of that, we thought, how do we build on this? How do we make this more available? And that's when we started Deadly Connections. So we, because the community already knew us, they were already coming to us for help. So Deadly Connections just gave us a platform to be able to provide that help because prior to that, we had no funding. We were just doing it off our own backs. So what drove you and Keenan to do that? I mean, it's a pretty big load to carry before you'd even established an organisation. What was the motivating factor for you guys? The motivating factor was our own experiences and, and needing support and not being able to get the right type of support and then you know the need for something that directly addresses the overrepresentation of our people in the criminal justice and child protection systems. So let's go back when did you two meet and when did you start this advocating? Yeah, oh, wow. So we met 2012, so nearly 10 years ago. But at that time, Keenan was still quite heavily involved in the justice system. So he'd gone back to jail and we continued to talk. And I supported him through sort of a therapeutic it's supposed to be a therapeutic prison, but I don't believe in therapeutic prisons, but it was a therapeutic program within a prison that sort of slowly reintegrated him back into community and gave him skills around understanding his drug use and his trauma and how that impacted on his behaviours and his choices. And so we continued to sort of talk. He basically started advocating as soon as he came out of custody which would have been about 2015, there was a screening of a documentary. It wasn't a screening, it was an impact campaign for a documentary called Prison Songs. 
and they had sent around a, a network email asking people if they knew anybody that had a lived experience of prison that could talk on it from a lived experience perspective. It came across um, an organisation that Keenan was working for at the time. They put Keenan forward. He spoke at the Opera House in front very first time public speaking and he nailed it and he got a standing ovation and that just gave him what he needed to continue to advocate and share his story and it's brought us to where we are today. Mm. When you say that, you know, you met him and then he went back to jail, was the concept of people going to jail, being in jail, had you been around that in your in your life up to that point? Yes. So yes. That, was, that wasn't anything like, wasn't oh my God, unusual. Jail. No, no. Um, my earliest memories of jails would have been from my own family members. So one of my uncles, my mum's brother, my mum's one of 10 children, mm. and one of her older brothers spent a significant amount of time in and out of custody. You know, my grandmother was a very important role model in my life and it's not uncommon to spend more time in Aboriginal communities with your grandparents and it is with the actual parents so I was always with my grandmother and we would go and visit my uncle in the different jails around Sydney so and I also had another cousin that spent time you know back in the 80s they used to let you go into the police cells in Sydney I don't know about in Melbourne but yeah. in Sydney and I remember being like Newtown police station was my grandmother's local police station all hours of the night going down into the cells and seeing my cousin. My grandmother had raised her, so she was more like my auntie, mm. but she was actually my cousin and seeing her sort of in the cells and so it was very normal for me. So what do you think that did to you as a child? Well, it normalised it. It normalised it and I didn't realise, I didn't understand the implications of that and overrepresentation until I went back and studied in my early 20s and I did my diploma in Aboriginal studies mm -hmm. and it brought it all together for me like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle really and I was like, oh, wow, I get it now. But did it make you angry? Like do you think it lit the fire of – It did. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, prior to that I used to do like beauty therapy. Mm-hmm. And then once I started looking into that sort of stuff and it all started coming together for me, I thought I need to do something like this is – I mean, I know I can't change it, but I need to at least try and help the people like my uncle and my family members that are that are wrapped up in that. I mean, there's a number of significant Aboriginal women and men who've been leaders of the community up till now. There's a bit of a gap now. Are you and Keenan, do you feel that you are – starting to fill those roles it's a tricky question because I don't think that's something that's not a title that we can give ourselves yeah. it's definitely something that the community may give us mm -hmm. and something that we need to earn I feel you know it's our responsibility we've been given a platform and we've been given resources to do it's not a lot of resources but what we what we have been given yeah. we need to use in the right way and we're committed to that and and you know we live and breathe it I mean even still you know Keenan's brothers are still justice involved yeah. um you know we've got other family and community members that are still trapped in those cycles we've got people that reach out to us from across Australia saying this is what's happening to my family member how do we build something like deadly connections in you know SA or Northern yeah. Territory or wherever that might be so it's not something that I would feel comfortable labeling myself but no. I hope that that's how I'm seen by the younger generation I know that Keenan would be the same and yeah. I see the influence that Keenan has over particularly over the younger boys that are that are trapped and in that in those systems and you know if he that that sort of message this is the message of hope this is you know if you're given the right support yeah. you can come out the other end it's mm. not easy but you can come out the other end. One of the most pressing issues of the moment, I guess, is the raise the age issue. What can be done? Is there something that the community can get behind in terms of a campaign or 
Why is it that 10-year-olds can be still incarcerated? Mm, That's a question I'd love Mm. answered, Mm. (laughs) you know. Um, It goes against – I mean, I don't believe any child should be in prison. I need to make that really clear because Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the campaign gets a little bit lost between sort of the reform and abolition argument. We we work within an abolitionist framework, so we don't believe any child should be in prison. However, this campaign is something that's really close to my husband's heart, something that he's been advocating for for a very long time and it's something that I'm passionate about because you know we've got two boys and I couldn't imagine I mean their chance of going to prison is already heightened because they're young Aboriginal boys and their father's been to prison and their uncles have been to prison and their great uncles have been to prison. So the statistics and the odds are already working against them. I couldn't even imagine that happening to them and that's what we're fighting for, the kids that are currently in custody and the future, you know, our future generations. But I think You know, more recently, the government has made this commitment to raise the age to 12, which demonstrates that the pressure is working. You know, they are listening, but they're doing their own thing. They're ignoring medical advice. So I think the quickest and easiest way to get involved is to write to government and say, no, we don't want it to 12, we want it to 14. Mm. And then once we, for me, our plan is once we demonstrate, we don't need to be locking kids up, we're coming for the rest of the kids that are in cages. Yeah. How old are your boys? They're four and five at the moment. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, Carly, that is, um, that's quite a handful. (laughs) It is. So what are you doing with your boys to teach them about what this world means to young First Nations children? I think just trying to, you know, they're a bit older. It's been hard because they've been babies. They're Mm. getting, one's in primary school now and one's in preschool still. But they're getting old enough to sort of have small conversations and really wanting to get them out to different communities and to see, you know, to connect them to their culture because we know for kids culture is a protective factor. So the more that we can connect our kids to their culture, the further away they are from the stuff that's no good for them. So we talk to our boys a lot about good choices. Um, We also talk to them about, you know, to be thankful for what they have because not everybody comes from the same type of household. And Mm. I think that's where that gets lost a lot. A lot of, you know, the adults that are in the adult criminal justice system are children who've been failed by multiple systems. And I think that gets lost because we we all have bleeding hearts for children, but people don't see the adults in the system as people who were once children, like my husband, who didn't get the support they needed and didn't come from the home environment that many other people who hold such high standards for everyone come from. Things that we get organically through the home environment, not every child gets. So it's really trying to get my kids to understand all of that stuff. And we also get them involved in giving back. Like it's never, it's never too early to show them. Like we've had the last COVID wave. We, my husband and I, hit the road and did um, food deliveries for community. We had our our oldest because it was COVID. We couldn't send him to school. The youngest one still went to daycare, but we had him in the car with us doing food deliveries, and he loved it. That's he'd powerful. fall asleep. He'd fall asleep most <laughs> of the time, but he understood that the people needed food and they were hungry, and he wanted to be a part of it. Another thing that the community really is in desperate need of is legal support because it's expensive, it's confusing, and you know the system doesn't help. What have you been able to do for the people needing legal help? Yeah, I mean, we try to partner with as many people as possible because obviously we can't do it all. 
part of what we want to do at Deadly Connections is develop the capacity of the sector, of many sectors, to work better with Aboriginal people. And so, you know, we work closely with a number of community legal centres to try and make sure that our people get appropriate access to legal support. And we've also got our supporters, our, our pro bono legal team, um, Kingwood and Mallisons, and they help us with all of our, like we would never be where we are now without that pro bono legal support because when we started we started with zero funding from the fourth bedroom of our home so we had absolutely nothing you know we learnt everything on the run and hit the ground running basically yeah how much of an assistance has igniting change been in that respect again another one of our really key partners where um jane has you know the ceo of igniting change has has walked alongside in fact Jane met Keenan when I talked about that event at the Opera House. That was mm. where Jane met Keenan. Okay. His very first public speaking event and Jane was just – she hasn't left our side since then. So um, Igniting Change has been instrumental in, in the development of Deadly Connections. More recently, they brought together a number of supporters and donated two seven-seater vans for us. So before we had one seven-seater vehicle, which was our – personal seven-seater vehicle yeah. as transport for Deadly Connections. We now have four vehicles all up. So a ute that's been donated, our seven-seater vehicle, and the two vans donated by Igniting Change. So it's just been amazing. You've got a fleet now. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, it feels like that. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, Carly, how prevalent is racism still in, in our society? I'm, I'm imagine growing up you would have seen a terrible amount of it. Is it any better? I don't think... I don't think it's shifted. I think what's changed is the awareness and it's getting caught on camera now and it's a bit more it's a bit more out there, you know. Um it's always been there. If you ask any Aboriginal person, it's it's I don't think that that's changed, but I think you know, when you look at documentaries like Incarceration Nation, there's you cannot deny systemic racism. Mm. You you just you just can't. So what moves do you think can be made towards better understanding? I think, you know, following the work of a number of Aboriginal people who are advocates and activists in the space and understanding the issues, which will also generally come with a call to action and ways that people can get involved. You know, we've got a number of social media channels. We're at Deadly Connections on Instagram. We're at Deadly CCAJS on Twitter. And we've got at Deadly Connections on Facebook. And we post all of our all of our really amazing work, but we also post informative sort of educational posts around racism and and sort of situations that are going on or, or campaigns that people need to get behind. You know, we support a lot of uh, families who have experienced a death in custody. Mm-hmm. Um, we also share a number, a number of other Aboriginal community-controlled organisations who are doing amazing work on the ground supporting MOB. So it's a real source of information. So really making sure that you're in touch with Aboriginal community-led platforms to make sure that the voices are coming from the right people, coming from Aboriginal community. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned before that people are coming to you all the time asking for Deadly Connections to set up in Perth or Victoria or whatever. Is it something that can be franchised or is that for other people in other states to organically create? We don't want to establish Deadly Connections in every state and territory because that's not 
the way that Aboriginal communities work. Mm. Aboriginal communities need to have localised solutions um, to the challenges they face. But what Deadly Connections can do is come into the communities and provide them with the models to develop what we've developed Mm. and make it localised. That's what we'd be happy to do. And is that something you're already doing? It's not something we're already doing because we don't have funding to do that. Mm. Um, It would be up to the, the agency seeking the information to get the funding. Or if we were provided funding, we could then identify certain communities that that need support and we could go in there and give them the tools that we have and let them develop their own solutions and create their own community safety. Mm. You mentioned doing food drops during lockdown, COVID and the whole disaster. What other effects did you see in the community of lockdown? I imagine it would have been very hard with various things like domestic violence and so on. Yeah, I mean, we know that rates of domestic violence um, increased over both COVID pandemics, uh, both waves. What we noticed was, you know, the second time in particular, I mean, for us, the food security and food relief is always an issue in our communities. Our communities live below the poverty line. So the difference is there's just a lot more resources during COVID to be able to provide those resources to community. Mm. The other big challenge that we've seen um, in our communities during COVID was the digital divide. So a lot of our mob don't, you know, we've got maybe one phone between a household of 10. Um, So when schools are expecting kids to homeschool, they're expecting that the house has Wi-Fi, they're expecting that every child has a device and all the things that go with it and, and a quiet space to learn. And that's just, it's not always the case. We've got communities with you know and households with big numbers Mm. because we've got big families that's common for us you know Um, and we love it we wouldn't have it anyway but these are the considerations that aren't taken into account when things like COVID happen so we were really trying to get you know laptops and credit and phones into households to make sure that kids had access to learning. Do you think a lot of kids would have dropped out? A lot of kids would have dropped out, yeah. Yeah. One of the initiatives that we we've started just in terms of that disengagement from education is a school suspension program to try and disrupt that school to prison pipeline. So we know a lot of our kids often if there's stuff happening at home will misbehave at school and they'll get excluded from school sometimes up to 21 days and during that time if you know they can't be home they're wandering the streets they come to the attention of police once they come to the attention of police they're always going to be on their radar and then it's much harder to get them engaged back in school so we're starting we're supposed to start this year but because of COVID we had to put it on hold Um, beginning of next year we'll be starting our school suspension program where we can target kids who have disengaged, whether through COVID or whether through being suspended, and try and re-engage them back into education. Mm. What keeps you awake at night? The systems, the harmful systems, the police, the jails, that's probably what keeps me awake at night. I feel like we probably have the least control over those those systems and they're so harmful. Mm. Child protection, child removal, that sort of stuff is what keeps me awake at night. Do you get a chance to have meaningful conversations with police about attitudes and their stance toward First Nations people? Yes, I mean, there's a really supportive superintendent in one of the local area commands in one of the areas that we work and he's actually in charge of the youth portfolio. So Mm -hmm. he's very interested in the way that his 
staff are interacting with young people and we had a a number of issues which we brought to his attention and we were quite satisfied with the way that that was dealt with and I feel that I've got a a very good relationship with him where if something happened I could just go straight to him and say look this is what's going on so it is possible but to me the the approach comes from the top down if they know that their superintendent isn't going to tolerate anything less than you know, satisfactory behaviour and interactions with community, then that's where it comes from. Mm. If there's nowhere that we can escalate our concerns, then they just feel like they can do what they want and they will. And that's the problem. But it doesn't mean that we won't we won't stop. We will find who we need to to get to where we need to get to mm. if our community are not being treated with respect. And what does your dream, in inverted commas, dream world look like? Well, when we talk about an abolitionist framework, it would be, uh, you know, a world free of, of harmful carceral systems that, mm. that control and disrupt families and cause violence. And, you know, we can't prevent violence by causing violence. And that's what they do, you know. So it would definitely be a world free of those systems and also a world full of opportunity for everybody, you know. That would be ideal for us. Are you hopeful? I think if we didn't have hope, what would we be doing? You know, if, if there isn't hope and I think a lot of, you know, for the majority of the people that are still stuck in the struggle, if they don't have hope, then what do they have? Yeah. You know, seeing stories like Keenan's is what gives them hope. And there's many other people that have also come out the other side. And it's not just my husband, mm. but for our community, you know, that's what that's the messages we get is that we do give them hope and we do show them there's a different way with the right support. Mm. You're proud of him, aren't you? Very proud. Yeah. It hasn't been an easy road, you no. know, and um, we've been very public about our struggles because we need people to understand the harms that are inflicted and the trauma that people carry with them. And if it's unresolved, the way that it manifests into harmful behaviours. So very proud of him. But, you know, healing is a journey. There's Mm. sort of no destination that we're getting to. It's just more we need to keep doing what we're doing to keep us on track and to keep us healing as well. When you were having problems, were people saying to you that you should just walk away? Yes. Yeah. And why didn't you? Well, I did. I did at first, you know. Um, He returned to custody and I didn't really want anything to do with him. And we shared children. So, you know, there was – I knew that that the kids were his protective factor, Mm. you know, and I needed to give him hope, you know, because if I took that away, it's like what would he be fighting for then? Mm. He'd be back to square one where he was 10 years ago where he just accepted that as his fate. And I wouldn't do that to anyone. You know, I don't think that – because harm's been inflicted on you, causing harm to other people repairs that harm because it doesn't, Mm. you know. I needed to forgive him for myself so Mm. that I could heal. And then during that time, you know, I started to see that he he understood the harm that he'd caused and and that he was committed to healing and he shows that every day. And your bond's stronger than ever? Yes, yeah, stronger than ever because we're both on that healing journey. Mm. It's like I can't expect him to do the work if I'm not doing the work and vice versa. Mm. So we're both really committed to creating the best future for our children regardless of whether that's together or as separate people. That's that's where it's at. Yeah. What's the one thing you take away from Igniting Change? What have they taught you? It's not so much that they've taught us but it's that they're aligned with our values around family and community, mm. everybody's family. You know, and that's what resonates for us. When Jane visited Sydney a number of years ago, Keenan took her around to the community and introduced her to different people. Mm. And she's sort of done that, you know, we're in Melbourne at the moment and she's, you know, we went to her house last night. It's like, 
Ken and I both have the opinion, you know, we didn't bring our kids this time, but if we can't interact with you, with our children as a family unit, then we're not aligned. We're not, yeah. we're not doing the same type of work. Yeah. So I don't know if it's so much what, what – I mean, Jane's an amazing woman and, and there are probably lessons that I've learnt from her that <laughs> trying to think about at the moment, but what stands out to me, like I said, is that alignment of values mm. and making sure that wherever you can help, you help in any way possible because you just don't know what difference that makes to people. Jane's done lots of things for us um, personally and professionally and she would never understand the impact that that's had and the, and the way that that's helped us get to our next destination. Well, Carly, I hope that next destination is full of really good things for both you and for Keenan and Deadly Connections. You're doing amazing work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember... See the person, not the label.